Welcome to another episode of Business Over Bourbon, where we pour equal parts business knowledge and fine bourbon to make a truly memorable cocktail. Your bartender for the evening is Corey Perlman, who's a digital marketing speaker and consultant by day, and Jimmy Buffett impersonator by night. That last part's a lie, but a man can dream. And now, put your pencil in one hand and highball glass in the other. It's time for Business Over Bourbon. What's up, everyone? It's Corey Perlman coming back with, I think, episode number six, maybe seven, uh, depending upon if you count that first one that we did kind of a practice round on. Uh, but I am super excited uh, for this episode of Business Over Bourbon. Uh, it's going to be a phenomenal episode. Uh, I met this guy uh, at uh, the, uh, the NSA Influence Conference 2017. And I'd heard of him, but I'd never met him in person before. And he was one of the highlights of my trip there. We had a really good time together. We got to know each other. Really good dude, smart guy. And we had a lot of fun together. So I asked him to be on this show. And he said, uh, what's it about? I said, bourbon. He said, good. And we got him on the show. So Phil, are you there, my friend? I am certainly here. And yeah, easy way to get me towards anything is, is to give me two of my favorite subjects, which is business and bourbon at the same time. So it's, um, yeah, delight to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. It's awesome. Now, now you, you, let's just go ahead and get the elephant out of the room here. You've got a really uh, nice, uh, sexy accent. You know that, right? It's uh, Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> Birmingham, Alabama. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely that. I'm, I'm from London, England, yes. Nice. Now, you reside in New York, is that correct? Yeah, I have a home here in New York, and I've just moved. So, like, the white walls and everything else like that, we moved yesterday. So, this is like, hey, let's do a makeshift studio so I can chat to Corey. Um, but yeah, and then I'm home back in the UK as well. It, it, the acoustics sound great, man. You sound you sound awesome. And, and yeah, and just so you know and the, the listeners know, there's really three ways uh, you can listen to this show uh, or, or, or digest this show. One is through video. We put it on YouTube one is through iTunes, through the podcast world, so just listening, and of course, both. And so, you know, as we go along, I'll make sure that our listeners can understand what we're doing and when we're drinking and how we're drinking it. So, Phil, let's talk a little bit about your background, man. So, we talk a little business on this show, and I'm pretty excited about your book. I'm going to flash it up on the screen now, and I'm also going to share for a second that, that this book is called Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for influence and impact. And what I noticed as I went through this book, Phil, is you've got a heck of a lot of sales experience. And this helps people understand kind of how to strategically take a little bit of control of the conversation in certain areas of the conversation. Is that fair? I, I think it's absolutely fair. In that's where well, that's where most people fall short in conversation is that they expect the other person to do the work, but the other person expects you to do the work. So the whole thing is a dance that nobody gets to finish. And success in sales is all about controlling a conversation. And I think there's a huge disconnect in sales as a whole as to what people think, because I ask my audiences, like, well, what do you think about salespeople then? Throw some words at me, some adjectives that would describe a stereotypical salesperson. And I get pushy, sleazy, slimy, used car, like this connotation of words that nobody would love to have to be used to describe them. I change one word and I ask them to describe now a, not a stereotypical salesperson, but a professional salesperson. And every single word changes. They come back to me with the complete opposite of what happens in the other direction. So yes, I speak to salespeople and I help people sell more effectively, yet still, it's people's perception of what sales is that perhaps is needing to change. So kind of promise to everybody listening in right now is if anybody ever says the words to you that you're a good salesperson, it's probably not a compliment. <laughs> it, it kind of like means you've been caught trying to sell something to somebody. And what, what we're looking to try and do largely through my work is, is demystify the process a little, have people prouder about the fact that selling is an okay thing to be able to do, and let's all accept something. I mean, just test it on you right now. Corey, do you like to buy stuff? I do like to buy stuff. So people like to buy stuff, but they hate salespeople. Surely somewhere there needs to be a marriage in this thing that, that everybody can get along and everybody can leave happy. And I think that's, that's really what much of the work in exactly what to say is all about, is to give not 
precise word choices that give you something that is like a superhuman power, but something you can understand principles that you can have controlling conversations. So you can create a scenario that everybody wins and you can find confidence in your language patterns in those difficult scenarios. You can be like, I got this, you know, I'm okay here. I can help you through this process. Yeah, you know, uh, and one of the reasons I really enjoyed reading your book is I always tell people, you know, since we live in the ADD generation, uh, it's really important to write and uh, share in, in that kind of world. And the, the, the bold print, um, the, the highlighted chapters, uh, the ability to be able to skim and learn which is not an easy thing to enable people to do, uh, which you were able to do in this book. Uh, really, really powerful. I, I'm actually uh, really impressed by it. And we're going to get into some more details in a few minutes. But there's another part of this show, Phil, that we need to get into. Yeah, it's the bourbon. So it's been sitting there, and you're not allowed to drink it yet until we talk about it. And I know you've been salivating over it. So let's get there. So... I'm going to go ahead and unveil to our watch, our viewers and our listeners what you chose. In fact, why don't you go ahead and unveil that? For those watching right now, they'll see me holding up a bottle. For those listening, um, it's a bottle of Widow Jane, which is out of Brooklyn, New York. Widow Jane. So, Widow Jane. So, I, um, you don't find Widow Jane everywhere. I'm going to tell people that right off the bat. <laughs> Uh, it's a little difficult to find, but it is, you know, it, it is in some of your larger liquor stores that have a nice, better inventory of bourbon. Tell us why you picked Widow Jane besides, I mean, obviously a big part of it is because it's from your uh, your, your your old stomping ground there in New York. Uh, that's a big thing. And I guess in my world as traveling as much as I do, and I know like you travel, Corey, too, is, is I like to try things that are local from where I'm from. And we established earlier on I'm not local from New York. But every time I go to a new city and I want to pull a beer, a bourbon, a drink of some description, my typical response to the server is just give me what's local. So I think that was a big driving force about why I picked this one today. And I know you're going to have a lot of other great guests in the future. I thought I'd try and reach for something that was, um, was a little peculiar but still something accessible. And the other choice was the Pappy. And I didn't think you'd be able to get yourself a hand on the bottle in time. So I, I figured we would launch it out with OJ. And above all else, I like it. And I think that's a good enough reason to pick anything, drink-wise, food-wise, anything-wise. It tastes good to me, and I like it. Yeah, and you know, before our listeners got to jump in here, something that we mentioned earlier, you had read an email, and you thought that I demanded that we didn't use ice. And I think that's, that's to know that when we both talked about that, we said, I said to you, and you agreed that there are no rules with bourbon. Like, I don't, I, I, that's kind of the reason I stay away from wine. And, and I, I wanted to get into bourbon in the first place is I didn't want the pretentious thing that, yeah. oh, he's, he's, he's using ice or, oh, he's not, or, you know, or it's, it's cubed ice versus, you know, circular ice and all that shit. It's like, I don't know, man. It, I, I just didn't want that pretentiousness, uh, you know, around whatever I'm doing or drinking, you know? Yeah, as long as we don't put Coke in it, I think we're good. Fair enough. Although, um, you know, there, there will be some episodes that we will mix bourbon. Now, we won't use Coke, but my wife uh, enjoys herself a Southern Mule. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, she can't drink it straight. So we'll, we'll have some episodes on that, but no Coke, no Coke, even gotcha. though I'm in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, so a couple of things about Widow Jane to start since we are in our uh, first sip. And by the way, cheers to you, my friend. Uh, thank you again for being on the show, and, and let's go ahead and take our first sip. So what I immediately notice about this bourbon compared to some of the other ones we've had is uh, uh, it's it, there's a lot there. I would say, I don't know if heat's the right word or just spice or something, but those who like rise and such, they, it's, a, it's an intense bourbon to me as compared to some of the others I've had, like Blanton's or Basil Hayden, which are a bit smoother. This one's got a little bit more of a bite. Yeah. Uh, you know, and some of our friends that have reviewed this bourbon uh, have said taste of honey, a hint of cherries, oak, or tobacco. Uh, as everybody knows, there always has to be 51% corn in bourbon. Uh, I will tell everybody that this one's 91 proof, which is not too scary as compared to some of the other ones 
that we have tried or will try in the future. Booker's is a little bit higher than that. Um, from a price perspective, it's a bit higher than some of the ones we've tried in the past. It, it retails, uh, the menu, uh, the MSRP is around 59. I bought it for 75. Where do you get it there in New York, Bill? It depends anywhere between 65 and 78, somewhere in between those two. Okay. And it looks like our mash bill, for those of you scoring at home, is 70% corn. So that's interesting. 20% rye, which might there get the kick a little bit, and 10% malt. It's a 10-year bourbon. And uh, Widow Jan likes to compare themselves to, to 20-year bourbons. That's kind of what they'll tell you is that you'll feel like you're drinking a 20-year bourbon, uh, which you know, may, may be the case. Anything else to share off of your first step, Phil, or you want to we'll, – we'll, we'll I think the, the, the only thing I'll add is, you know, is their story talks towards – and I, this was power in a story. You know, you're a marketeer in, in your work. And a big thing that talks to me from this is um, the limestone or the stone that, that obviously the water comes through. And when they talk to me about the fact that this is the same stone that then spreads out that the Empire State Building is built on and the Statue of Liberty was built on and the New York as a city is built on, it's like, it might not be true, but I'm happy with it. <laughs> you know, like, I'm good with that story. I feel like every sip, I'm like adding a little bit of extra strength to my, to my arsenal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's been a running theme on this show that you never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I think that uh, our speaker friends will appreciate that. I want to say a couple other things about your bra background, Phil. Um, you know, we're going to talk about some sales today. And I know you've had a career in sales. Can you tell, it started at almost like age 16 to 18, somewhere in that age? Uh, a little bit before that, in fact. <laughs> um, I, I started in my first legitimate business and, and there was a few things that were prior to this still, but my first legitimate business was at 14 years of age. And I started just knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them quite politely whether they would like to have their cars washed. Hmm. And some said no, some said yes, but most just asked me how much I would charge. And I very quickly realized that that meant that they were pretty darn interested, providing my prices were reasonable. And I did okay with this little car cleaning business, so much so that by the age of 15, I wasn't going to school quite as often as I should. And I remember being invited in by my school teachers, questioning my attendance, saying, but why aren't you coming to school? And I responded with a question. And I said, sir, how much money are you making? <laughs> and my school teacher refused to tell me at the time, but at 15 years of age, my little car cleaning business was delivering me around 2,500 pounds a month. So around $4,000 a month at the time. So the good reason I didn't have to go to school is because I had things to do, you know, customers needed servicing and staff needed direction. There was a business to run. And that really whetted my appetite for entrepreneurship. It was this big belief from a very, very young age. Now when I look back on it in hindsight of, kind of nothing happens unless you make it happen and that you're responsible for your own destiny. And I was still being sucked into this idea of what our education system teaches us. You know, you, you go get good grades, you get a good job, the good job takes you through the career path and then one day you wake up with a wonderful pension. Mm -hmm. um, that was the plan that my parents wanted me to go down because they wanted me to have a good education. So all through, you know, building businesses through my teens and, I still worked hard on my studies, like part-time around my businesses. And I'm not ever advocating people not to go to school. I think education is something that we should all take for the rest of our lives, regardless of what somebody's name is over the door. But at 18, I got a, um, a dilemma. I had a, an offer of going to one of the most prestigious universities in my country. And um, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to just go get a piece of paper to make my parents proud. I said to my mum, I said, how would you feel if, um, if I could go and get one of those big jobs? You know, the kind of jobs that you need the great degree for. If I could do that, would that make you proud? And she said it couldn't be done, yet three weeks later, I proved her wrong. I became the youngest ever sales manager for a business called Debenhams Department Stores. And Debenhams is like a Macy's or a Nordstrom type group. And this is just really cool thing. Like, when you're in a senior leadership position in a sales capacity at the age of 18, you don't know what you don't know. So you're like ignorance on fire in terms of getting results. All I would do is follow the stuff that I was told to do, I'd like implement the training, I'd take action because I was so scared of doing it wrong. It's like, show me the way I should do it. I'll just do that. 
And I picked up so many best practices and went from store to store to store to store to store. And bosses were just mesmerized with the results I'd get. And they'd ask me, like, how do you do it? And I only had one answer. It was, we just do the basics to a high standard consistently. They said, is there anything else? I said, not really. And it was at that point I kind of hit one of those glass ceilings, you know, where the only way you can get to the next job is if the person above you leaves or dies. <laughs> and this guy was in great shape. <laughs> so it was like, well, what next? And uh, inbound phone call from a guy called Lord Graham Kirkham um, invited me to get involved in the largest furniture retailer in the UK. And my job there was to help work from store to store to store to help turn around and fix broken stores. So these are retail stores that used to turn over 12 million and drop back to seven or eight to kind of turn around there quick. And I did it for every store. And the same thing would crop up. It's like, how? What are you doing? And my answer again was simple. It was always, we do the basics to a high standard consistently. They said, there must be more. I said, well, maybe a few sprinkles of magic. And, and it was at that point I caught my bug for training. I very quickly realized that I got far more personal satisfaction seeing huge success through other people than I could ever get through the success that I'd do all by myself. And, and, and I wrote a load of the training principles that are still part of that business today. Um, and then I got kind of sick like of working every Saturday, every Sunday, every bank holiday, like 14 days straight following Christmas. It was insane work hours in that retail center. So I... Um, I went to work in the world of professional soccer for a while. I was commercial director, head of retail at two Premier League soccer clubs, helped secure largest shirt sponsorship deals the club had ever had, tripled the size of the retail operation, and um, then went and built a fairly big property business. With a business partner of mine, we turned over 240 million pounds at our peak on a sales team of five. And then 2008 hit, hmm. got a little tricky. Mm -hmm. We had a great product on a Monday, and by the Friday, we had something we couldn't give away. Interesting. So it was what next? And, and that's where I kind of got my teeth into what I do right now, which is what we're nine years in, where I started delivering essential sales skills to non-salespeople, not because it was the business I wanted to build, but because I gave a damn in that recessionary period. It's something that I knew so much about. I was just seeing like people, real people, failing to get the results that I knew they were capable of because they either were scared or they didn't know how to sell stuff. So that's where my workshop starts and the business grew out of that. So what I noticed about you and, and you know, you, you teach sales. And one of the things I've noticed by getting to know you is there's really nothing sleazy about you. Um, I can honestly say that. And, and so how do you, you mentioned that professional salesperson, the person that you want to talk to versus the person that you try to get away from. What do you, what are some of the, 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 the secrets, I guess, if you will, that you help people kind of transition from sleazy to professional? Well, the first secret is there is no secret. Um, you have to care. Mm -hmm. You have to give it there. And you want a dictionary definition in my mind of what selling really is, is that selling is earning the right to make a recommendation. Yeah. Earning the right to make a recommendation. It's not features and benefits and embellishing something so somebody else thinks it sounds sexy. It's learning and understanding and discovering and then making an informed and educated recommendation towards those things. And in the medical industry, they say that prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Same thing is true in the sales industry. I mean, if you walked into a doctor's surgery and the doctor said to you, um, man, I'm glad you came. You've got to try these new pills. Pharmaceutical rep was in yesterday. He said, if you take these things, you've got to do things you could only ever dream of. Like, you wouldn't feel too good about taking those pills, but if the doctor sits you down and says, hey, what's up? And you tell them and they understand your symptoms and then they maybe run a test or two and then tell you to take the exact same pills, what do you do? You take the pills. And I think this is the mistake that people make about salespeople. Like, I hear phrases like, oh my God, he can talk the hind legs off a donkey. You'd be great at sales. Or oh, you've got the gift of the gab. Or you could sell ice to an Eskimo. Or any of these kind of things. I'm like, no, that's just wrong. Like great salespeople are firstly fantastic listeners. Mm. If you sell ice to Eskimos, Eskimo wakes up tomorrow and, excuse my French, he's pissed. He's like looking around going, I've got ice. <laughs> And in your social media world and everything that exists now in 2017, 2018, 2019 and on, is you sell somebody something that's the wrong thing for them, tomorrow that's not good news. Good point. 
It's a massive problem. And what we need is we need people to wake up tomorrow and go, damn, that was worth it. Mm. Who do I need to tell? How do I build a reputation? So, so I think like selling with integrity is, is on the upsurge. It, you know, it needs to happen because people celebrate the wrong thing. And I think this is, is probably the clearest, the most simplest way to be able to understand the difference is I get kind of mad at Wolf of Wall Street type stuff. If, if you're celebrating the winning of the deal, you're whooping and hollering at the wrong time. Mm. The time to whoop and holler is when the person you told was going to get X, Y, or Z result gets X, Y, or Z result so you can celebrate with them. Mm. That's the difference. Doesn't sound like rocket science, but so many people get it wrong. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so, okay. I want to, I want to hit on one point that you made in there. Um, you said that, you know, diagnosing, you know, before prescription, and I noticed a lot of those open-ended questions in your book, what are some, um, and again, the book for those of you who are listening is called exactly what to say, talking to Phil M. Jones, uh, the magic words for influence and impact. Uh, what are some of the questions that people can maybe just burn into their brain that gets the prospect in the uh, mode of starting to help them diagnose whether or not they need it or not? The majority of people in a sales role are probably what I would clarify sales prevention officers rather than people helping the process. And they'll run into a sales meeting largely unprepared, largely with an inability to answer, ask questions and start by telling somebody why something is so fabulous. If we back up a second and we take a really important fact into the matter is that the other person agreed to meet you. Now, if the other person agreed to meet you, they must have thought for a second that you might have been able to help them. They must have had some form of genuine interest into what you're about and they must be open in some way to being like, okay, this could go well, whether it's, like 90% of your favor and 90% against you, you're in the door. So why not start the conversation in an area where you have nothing to lose and start by saying something along the lines of, well, what is it that's given you, you know, the intrigue to think that we might better make something work into it? You know, what is it about me that makes you think that we might better help you achieve X, Y, Z? And put the onus back on the other person. If you're asking questions, you can never miss. Mm. You can't be wrong with a question. If a customer says something, it must be true. If you say it, it might not be. So the goal is to be able to just start being broad, wide, and open. If I reach for some examples in the book, is one of the things that many people are fearful of in the sales world is they're just fearful of rejection. They're so scared of rejection, they'll do anything they can to be able to avoid it. So if you can introduce an idea to somebody in a completely rejection-free fashion, then you can avoid rejection for any party and you can do this with words so if i'm to say to you corey look i'm not sure if it's for you what i'm doing is i'm positioning it to the left or the right of you and a few things happen in your subconscious first thing that happens is well i'll be the judge of that <laughs> so it kind of creates an internal motivation second thing is what what is it what is it so you lean in and by suggesting something to the left or to the right of somebody, it allows them to realize that this isn't forceful, this isn't persuasive, this isn't you trying to be able to bring a, a level of manipulation, this is just an idea. And we can deal with ideas, right? Hey, look, I'm not sure if it's for you, but um, you know, next Thursday we're going to XYZ show, I wonder whether you might want to come. Well, the onus is all on you to be able to move, bring that to a business concept. Is hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but many of our clients have been having huge success with this, 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 and this. I wonder whether you might want to take a look at it. It just becomes a very natural way of being able to insert an idea. But let's back up again towards that whole questioning piece. Is we've got to get to why. Why does somebody want to be able to choose you to help them with the thing? So throw a scenario at me right now, and let's see if we can expand on some questions and riff something out that's useful for the listeners. Give me a, just a, a contextual scenario. I don't care how wrong, right, weird, obnoxious it is. Let's, let's play with something right now. In terms of an example of something we could sell? Yeah. <clears throat> how about this bourbon? Okay. 
So we're going to take this bourbon, right? And what would normally happen is you give this to a salesperson to be able to sell, and what they want to be able to do is to tell the story about where it's come from, tell you why it's so wonderful, give me the seven bourbons that it's better than, tell me about the five-star rating and everything that makes it so brilliant. And the real thing that's going through my head is all the time that somebody's saying that, so what? Yeah. So freaking what? And um, we'd be better with a question, wouldn't we? Firstly, we need to understand whether the person we're talking to has an interesting bourbon. So without that, it doesn't matter how good the bourbon is. If you don't drink it or you haven't got a marketplace for it. So are we talking about the bourbon to get somebody to drink it or are we talking about somebody to buy a case? Yeah, let's say it's a, it's a, maybe it's a, a group of liquor stores, a distribution. You know, let's make it a big sale. Okay. Um, so we're going to start big, broad, and wide, aren't we? We're going to sort of start and say, so tell me a little bit about your customers, the type of things they like to drink. Uh, you know, my customers are, you know, live in a higher demographic. It ten, ten, they tend to enjoy, um, you know, uh, spirits that are of the sort of higher echelon than the bottom sort of mainstream liquors. Okay. And you have many whiskey drinkers? We do have quite a few whiskey drinkers. What are some of the favorite brands and things that they go for? They tend to, you know, they, they tend to reach a little bit, but um, not too far out. You know, they may get like a Jack Daniels single barrel or, uh, you know, a maker's small batch or something. Something that's still familiar to them, but maybe a little bit more in the high end area. Okay. And why do you think that is? Uh, they just don't know. I'm not sure that they uh, are familiar with uh, things outside that, that sort of mainstream line. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is they don't like to go to anything that's like crazy and, and weird, but if there's some form of solid story to it, they like to be able to experiment. Correct. Okay. Well, how would you feel if I could show you something that fits that almost exact criteria? It's not a sister of an existing mainstream brand, but it sits within that price point. It's got a beautiful little story alongside it. And, um, it would plug straight into that price point, but it would give you a differentiation versus every other liquor store locally. That I would like. Okay. Very competitive in my industry. Tell me where the kind of ceiling price is for you, where it starts to get tricky. Over $70. Okay. So we're looking at something that if you could bring it in at $69, like where would that sit within your store? I mean, is that going to be something that's hidden away at the back or is this something that you can do a feature on? Where does it work? We could definitely do a feature on and I, we do some of our bourbons that we bring in. We'll, we'll tell, we'll try to show the story at, you know, in front of the bourbon, either the rating that they may have or maybe a few awards that they may have won to try to, to build the credibility of that bourbon. How well does that kind of stuff work for you in the box? Really well, um, if the if the distributor helps us tell that story. Okay, and what would you need from me to be able to make that really work for you? That marketing stake that uh, will help people pick that bourbon over a lower end bourbon because my margins are higher when I sell a more expensive bourbon than when I sell a lower bourbon. Okay, and what kind of volume do you think you might be able to shift over what kind of time period if we can get this right together? You know, I think that uh, we could go through a case a month. We have with uh, some small batch products that, uh, you know, were, were completely new to what we originally, to, to, to other bourbons that we had in the past. So if I could get you into, a, into say, maybe a case of a new product to your area, but not a new product to the marketplace, but something that people haven't worked with, that provides you some support for us to come and do some tastings and kick it off with a bang, would that be something we can move on this month? We could, you know, but I think what we're going to need to do before I commit to that is try it with straight up no ice. <laughs> Transition. Well, well played. Those are great questions. One thing that I, uh, I appreciated in that exercise, Phil, is um, some close-ended questions, which I think are good to kind of move the conversation along, but also being careful of not asking too many closed-ended questions, meaning yes or no versus open-ended questions to give the, uh, the prospect the opportunity to be able to embellish on whatever they're talking about. Is that fair? Yeah, and, I, and I'll let you do the work. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I couldn't lose. It's how many of these are we going to do and when are we going to start? There's no shall we or shan't we. It's just what's it going to look like. Right, 
Right, right, right. All right. Well, let's get into our, um, we're doing perfect on timing, uh, but let's go into our straight up no ice segment. So what we're going to do here, uh, folks that are listening, you can see the bottles are coming out again. This time what I've asked Phil to do, and I'm going to do myself is to try a little bit of the whiskey Jane without ice. So uh, we, we're going to go. Jane. We, need the, we need it on point on the brand, right? Oh, what did I say? Whiskey Jane? Whiskey Jane. I mean, Sorry, telling, Widow you're, you're Jane. Telling, I apologize. You're telling me about somebody you once used to know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Widow Jane. The, the beauty of editing, Phil. All right, hold on one second. We're going to try uh, the Widow Jane here without ice. So I'm going to go ahead and make our first pour. Here we go. Smells great. So for the folks that are kind of new to bourbon or really any kind of, uh, you know, whiskey or, uh, you know, product similar to that where you can either put ice or not ice, the one nice thing without ice is you do get a little bit more of the notes, um, you know, again, again, with the smells and such. I prefer to drink mine cold, um, but in these particular cases, when you're really trying to understand uh, whether or not you like the bourbon or not, it's nice to have it without ice. Yeah. Mm-mm. So, and I'm going to ask you in a minute, Phil, kind of what your feeling is with this bourbon over, over others, but uh, one kind of review that I saw online uh, about Widow Jane that I thought was pretty interesting, uh, th- this person says this is not a beginner's bourbon, and I would completely agree with that. Uh, I, I would share this with people who have been enjoying bourbon for a while, and they're, they like their bourbon a slightly more tannic profile. Fifty, Like we said, 55, uh, $55 MSRP. Uh, and he says, I would give this one a try at a bar before buying a bottle. It's solid, but a bit too oaky in his opinion. Uh, and a bourbon that doesn't quite hit his preferred flavor profile. It's worth a try before you buy. Then if you like it enough, by all means, grab a bottle. Phil, what, what do you feel like this bourbon compared to other bourbons uh, in your collection? Um, for me, it kind of sits in a position where this this is a, you did good today, Phil, bourbon. It's like, <laughs> it's like this is a treat. I, I'm not going to sit and drink this every day. Right. Even if I might want a bourbon every day, like I, I'd reach for a, you know, yeah. I know you've had like others on the show, like a, you know, I could reach for a Woodford or a Makers or just like a like an everyday kind of. Th- this is a special oh, occasion. Great. Yeah, this, this is, is a this, special occasion. This is a, I mean it, and, and I. The reason I kind of feel that is it has like a little crispness in, it. and this is going to make no sense to probably anybody other than my head. But you know, when you drink like a champagne, it has that a good champagne has that like crisp sharpness to it. Yep. This, I feel, has that same kind of, the flavor starts, it explodes, and it finishes kind of crispness to it. It doesn't linger. It's not sticky. It's not super sweet. I think your review talked about like that tanning type type flavor to it. I, I get all of that going on with Widow Jane that I don't get in other, in other birds. And, and its difference is why I like it. Mm. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And here's another review. Um, the Widow Jane isn't a standout in any particular way, but that's one of its attributes. Sometimes it's totally fine to just be, to not be superlative. It's pleasant, though not meek, friendly, but not boring. It's a solid choice, though not, ex- not inexpensive, around $70 a bottle. Widow Jane is well-made and tasty, if not, oh my God. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's, got a, it's got a nice flavor profile. And I'll tell you something, I've been trying rise more and more lately. And when you're looking for kind of a little bit more of a, you know, a, 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 a spice to it. And I think that Widow Jane, although still being a bourbon, uh, still gives you a little a bit of that spice. It has yeah, a- it's a, yeah, it's got a kick of kind of like a, a, a rye to it. And I won't, I, I'm just determined not to mention the name of any other bourbon or rye just for the for the sake of the show. Oh, you know, that's okay, man. I mean, you know, the, all, all sponsors are welcome. So if, you know, <laughs> Lantons or Bookers or Basil Hayden wants to come knocking, you know, we'll answer. So, um, 
All right, so we're going to switch gears for a second. One of the things that I learned about you at Influence 2017, the largest speaking conference in the world, uh, is your success with Facebook Live. And, and because I'm a, a digital marketing person, I've had guests on the show, uh, like Jason Falls, who have that kind of background. Uh, and so we've talked a lot about that. And we've talked about Facebook Live, but you've done it pretty darn well. Talk a little bit about your experience with Facebook Live, how you've used it, and why you've been pretty darn successful with it. Yeah, it's, it's a huge area. And you know, for anybody with a marketing background, I was listening to one of the other shows actually the other day, is, is that there is this like permission-based approach that is remarkably important. That you market towards people that um, quite like to hear from you. Facebook Live provides the utmost, most beautiful platform for you to be able to operate existingly successful marketing strategies just utilizing a new channel. So what you have with Facebook Live when you look at it as a, as a complete kind of communication channel, even disregarding Facebook, is you have the ability at any moment at any point in time to be able to almost start better than a telephone conversation with a multiple group full of people at any one period of time where you're instantly established as the expert and everybody needs to listen. Plus with the power of disruption added to it too. So Facebook Live is, is an incredible tool in the right pair of hands. I did a live video the other day actually because I'm starting to have a love-hate relationship with Facebook Live and my my video was titled Why Facebook Live Sucks. <laughs> and interestingly, I tried another video with a similar kind of title and Facebook cut the feed four, time, four times on the bounce. Really? So uh, that freaked me out a little. Um, but <laughs> Facebook Live is, is a wonderful tool when used right. The mistake I see lots of people making is like, they just go live for no apparent reason to nobody. It's like right. just... Like we work in the world of professional speaking and when we've got a captive audience, we can deliver some magic. But you can't just rock up into Penn Station and start delivering your gig and expect people to, to stand up and pay attention. It's going to be ugly. And that's what people end up doing online is that they go, hey, look at me, 600 friends. I'm ready to be able to tell you about my ice cream cone. Um, and expect it to be brilliant. So... Facebook Live had a window where what happened is, is you could be remarkably average and get some instant exposure because it was new, it was shiny, it was fun. It's like, hey, I'm on TV. Sure. Um, whereas now there's a chance, or well, there's always been a chance, but now more than ever, you have to be strategic with how you use it. So the approach that I take towards, towards Facebook Live is, is freedom within fences. It's about saying, well, how do you find the people who want to play, who resonate with your message, you want to listen to what you, want, what you have to say, and how do I bring them all together? And you use groups. So you use Facebook groups to be able to find like-minded people, and then you perform with brilliance in scheduled Facebook Lives. And whether scheduling is through the scheduled Facebook Live scheduling tool, or whether it's because you've got another way, like through email or another marketing method, of being able to tell people it's 8 o'clock on Thursday, um, people expecting to be there, feeling engaged and involved in the conversation, you got a chance to better make it fly. Can I, can I jump in the weeds? I'm sorry, just jump in the weeds just for one second. Did, did you indicate that you are doing more Facebook Lives in groups, like different groups on Facebook, or are you doing most of them still through your per personal profile? Largely and exclusively is all we've really ever done is within closed groups. So private groups, uh, secret groups, etc. Because my view on it is, is the same as a conference. Like I need to sell tickets to put on a show and then deliver a show. I can't just start delivering a show. The same is true on the internet. So you create a Facebook group, you find the people that are interested in what your stuff's about, you bring them all towards a thing and then you say, well, for 14 days or seven days or 31 days or 29 days or whatever you decided to be, we're going to teach you about X or we're going to deliver this over this period of time. And I'll give you an example so you listen to get it. 
February in a group, I decided to bring together a giant part of my community that are interested in personal development. And I ran a, a campaign called 14 Days of Love. And it was from February the 14th through till February the 28th. And it was a different expert every single day. Wow. So I'd go live in the morning in this closed community and I'd give the reasons why this person is somebody I've been selected to be able to deliver on this message. And then I'd hand the live later on at a scheduled time to mm. another person to perform. So I treated it like a conference and I'm the MC. Cool. But play this whole thing out in a group. We had seven and a half thousand people loving it. But what it then led towards is other companies saying, hey, this is brilliant. And then within a corporate setting, I run currently six Facebook groups for sales teams and organizations and then like-minded franchise individuals on um, delivering them business development information and running live Q&As within closed Facebook groups using Facebook Live as my vehicle to get But nobody sees it. Yeah. So the marketing is being done offline. It's being caught, being done, being brilliant in groups. But isn't this the same as how our speaking business works? Yes, it is. Go do showcase somewhere. Get caught being brilliant. Corporate looks to be able to book you to be able to speak to their people. All I'm ever doing with what I deliver in successful online marketing is what works in the real world, replicated in an online fashion, but still keeping all the hard stops and principles in place. Wow. So... So, so, so Facebook, and a couple of things with Facebook Live is just for tips. I, I, like, I know that some people listening in right now may have never even experienced working with it or being that side of the camera is let people know when you're going to be there. Yes. Give them time to turn up. Don't start too early because then what you've got is two-thirds of the audience that are chasing the things that are trying to figure out. So you have to be prepared to get really good at waffling entertainingly for three minutes. Encourage people to be able to engage with your Facebook Live because even now within a closed group, and this has only changed in the last three months, um, unless people are commenting, sharing, liking, engaging, pressing hearts, giving love, all that kind of stuff, even in a group with 10,000 people in it, your Facebook Live won't be seen more than a few hundred people unless there's engagement. So you have to build a hands up, show me love, engage, comment, question, tell me, etc. if you want it to play out. So you have to treat it like a, like a live seminar if, if you want it to play. And this means that if you're not confident to deliver to a live audience, you're not confident to deliver to a Facebook Live. Mm. It, it's not licensed for everybody to play. It's licensed to play if you have something worth sharing. Mm. Uh, I mean, that you just mentioned a tip that I'd actually never heard before uh, with, with, the, with Facebook Live in terms of the private groups, and I noticed you've done that. And I, I, my biggest challenge or concern with it was the the, the publicity of it or the public you know portion of it. But your point is spot on that if you can create a great experience within that group, people will talk. It just may not be through Facebook; it may be offline. Well, you can also then give the power to the people in your group to add other people. Mm. Mm. Now it's like a little exclusive club. And how many conferences do you know were brilliant that you didn't go to? <laughs> Lots. Right. And you've decided that they were freaking awesome, but you have no factual evidence to be able to base that. Yeah. We can create that same thing online if we're smart enough, but people keep going for the cheap you know, the cheap win in the online marketing space. It's like, how do I, how do I do something today that gets me paid today, that converts my funnel today? It's like, slow it down. Like real relationships and winning trust does not go out of fashion. If you could, if you're good at something and you have a message worth sharing, then put an event on online that, happens in a Facebook group, invite people to it over a three, four week period of time and then be brilliant for seven days and six, mm. asking for nothing in return. And then say, well, this was fun. What next? Well, I've got this great idea. And then step them towards something paid from them, but you've earned your stripes. And what you'll what you're do is you'll bring a majority of people with you as opposed to picking up these ones and twos in other spots. I think one of the things that uh, we 
become a little short-sighted on when we do some of these things is that we're looking for the immediate result, like selling a certain amount of books or, or attendees or products or whatever. And what I think you're getting at is, um, you know, you're creating thought leadership, you're creating a tribe, you know, to, to pull from Seth Godin. And it's a lot bigger than that. They're going to remember you for years to come, you know, if you're creating that kind of value. So, so we talked about this a little while ago, right? Um, I built a Facebook group. Anybody listening in is welcome to join it. It's by the same name as the book. We have nearly 8,000 people in the Facebook group. But I, um, I read to them every day for 23 days. I saw that. It was awesome. Well, you saw part of it. So I went live for every day for 23 days just reading one little chapter, micro chapter of the book. Then at the end of being live every day for 23 days, I went live publicly mm. and I read the whole book cover to cover. Yes, you did. But the supporters inside my group that heard from me every day thought that was awesome. When I read the whole book to the outward world, the impact from me reading it to the outward world was not a patch on me reading it every day over 23 days to a close group of people in terms of reaction. So we can't ever get away from the fact that exclusivity is a thing, right? The reason that some people like this as, and I'm holding up the bottle of Widow Jane, as opposed to Jim Beam, is not everybody would spend the money on this. There's an air of exclusivity. Mm-hmm. The same is true in every area of life. So if you want to make Facebook Live work for you, make it exclusive. Make it that not everybody gets in. Make it that something's happening behind a little barrier. And the biggest risk, I think, with most social platforms right now is accessibility is abundant, Mm -hmm. which means why now? I can check later. I don't need to look at that because that's good too. And so is that. And so is that. And so is that. Yeah. (laughs) So everywhere. So like make it this you can't see unless you just walk through this gateway. Even if the gateway is join a group. And groups are cool now as well is you can now – ask questions of people when they join a group so you can get them to like fill in a questionnaire. Wow. That's cool. So like coming into my group right now, I ask three questions. It's, um, are you interested in how word choices can affect the, uh, you know, the success of your sales conversations? Yes. No. Um, are you prepared to read the group rules and abide by what it is that we talk? And one of the final group rules is Phil makes the rules. Uh, <laughs> And then the third thing is, would you be open to promoting and help support the success of the book um, as a result you know, of benefiting from any of the advice that you've seen in the group? And now I'm making you welcome to join, but you've got to say yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So you can put little barriers in, and it means that when people come, they just put a bit more equity into being there. Therefore, they feel it a little more, and they do more when they get there. It's awesome, man. Um, again, folks, for those of you who are listening, I'll tell you right now that uh, – Exactly what to say. I've been kind of monitoring over the last week or so. Uh, We're in, just for folks that know, uh, towards the end of the July, beginning of August of 2017, the book launched over the last few weeks here. Uh, it's hit pretty much look like to me every every ranking you were hoping it hit on Amazon and then some. It seems to be doing really well. Um, so we're going to go into our last segment here, Phil, although I know time is flying by. We're getting kind of towards the uh, the witching hour, so to speak. Uh, so final sip, I do want to say cheers to you. Thanks again for uh, coming on board here, man, drinking a little bourbon with me, talking a little business, a little sales, um, a little Facebook Live, which you know I love as well. So cheers to you, my friend. And cheers to you for inviting me on. It's like cool to drink bourbon and talk business isn't it man uh you know i feel like they kind of did that they've been doing that for ages and and i think like world problems were solved over you know bourbon or some sort of uh spirit like this so why not you know talk about this stuff keep it up um so i want to my last segment here is i kind of want to get back into your book a little bit and debunk well they're either debunk or, or maybe uh uh you might say, no, I actually agree with that. Just some, some general myths that we've, we've heard over sales. And one thing I noted in your book um, is that at times you do go negative. And I've noticed that um, there are a lot of different opinions in sales about whether or not you should go negative. What I mean by going negative is you kind of make the person feel the pain. It's an uncomfortable question. It's not supposed to be, you know, a totally a fun experience. You know, what, what is your feeling on that whole thing of going negative versus the alternative? Okay, this is a great question, actually. And 
I think we've got a misinterpretation because it's never going negative or going positive. If you're looking to be able to market or sell anything to anybody, what you're asking them to do is to change. You know the number one reason people don't change? Why is that? It's because they're comfortable. Like, let me ask you right now is, do you know some things that you could be doing in your business that would make you more money and more successful? Yes. That you're still choosing not to do? Yes. As does everybody. And the reason you don't do them isn't because you don't know how or that you haven't got the skill or the inclination or any of those things. It's because you're fine. It's because like other things are just a little more important right now and, and life's not too bad. But if all of a sudden somebody held your kids hostage or you know, put your wife up for ransom, etc., and the way you would need to go to get this back was to do the thing that you're currently telling yourself is difficult, you'd find a way to be able to get that thing done quickly and easily. I think the easiest way I can explain it right now, is there a door in your room? Ironically, no, but there's a front door close to me. <laughs> Outside that door, does it open onto the ground floor? Yes. I want you to imagine that's not true. I want you to imagine that behind that door, when you open it up, it just is a sheer drop towards the floor. Mm. But you're not on the ground floor, you're 87 stories high. It's okay though, because adjacent to your doorway, 150 yards away is another building that has an identical door. The fixed at your building is still braided wire. It's an inch and a quarter thick, it's perfectly fixed at your building and it's perfectly fixed at the building across the way. I mean, 150 yards and a lot of humidity in Atlanta right now, can imagine, firstly, there's some bounce in the road. Sure. It's a little slippy. And I'm just wondering, like, when we're done with a couple of bourbons inside you, how do you feel about walking the tightrope? Uh, I'd be pretty – I probably wouldn't do it, to be honest. But what if I gave you 10 bucks? Probably not. 100? No. Okay, let's make it interesting. 10,000. How, how far – how high am I again? Right, now you're starting <laughs> to <push. laughs> Now you start the question, and then I'm sure if we go 100,000 and the questions get a little deeper and a million, you're thinking, hell yeah, right? Um, but still, for most people, they're like, there wouldn't be a number I could get to to make them want to do a thing they don't want to do. But what if something different was happening, and the room you're sat in right now is getting crikey warm? I mean, so crazy warm, the flames are licking in your face, and smoke's filling up your lungs, and the only way out is through that door, across that tightrope, and then safe to the other side? You're pretty happy to get out right now? Absolutely. So don't try and tell me that people will look to move for a scenario that makes them more comfortable. I mean, I offered you $10,000, $100,000. You'd be a lot more comfortable on that sum of money and you still didn't want to move. Yet when there's a little tickle of a flame in your face, you're thinking, get the hell of me out of here. This same thing is true in all of our marketing and sales conversations, the whole language proposition that we position to people. You have to be prepared to get people to be a little bit uncomfortable. The mistake people make, though, is that they just think about the bad news. So you're fine, and here's the bad news. Now you're annoying. What you have to do is you've got to show the contrast. You've got to say, hey, where are we going? And... Well, let's finish on something really practical. It was a three-stage questioning technique you can use to get just about anybody to do just about anything. You up for that? Absolutely. Rock it out. Um, do you believe this time next year you'll be better off than you are right now? Yes. So does everybody. It's a good place to be. So what you start by doing is asking a future-facing question, a plan-based question. So what are your plans for X, Y, and Z? So what are your plans for your business over the next five years? What are your plans for the summer? What are your plans for, you know, what's happening in your career? What are your plans for promotion? I don't mind what it is. What are your plans for? Some form of plan-based question. And what happens is people tell you the good news. Shut up and listen. Let them keep going. Mm. Nod, smile, grunt. Do all the kind of suggested noises you need to be able to say, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. Ask them that plan-based question. They've painted out this picture of utopia. How do you feel when you talk about a good news scenario in the future? Pretty darn good, right? You Absolutely. feel somewhere bordering on amazing. But it's not enough. We need people to feel better than that. We know that decisions are made on emotion over logic. Somebody, something has to feel right before it'll ever make sense. So we encourage them to feel right. But the second stage of this questioning technique, which is asking a feelings-based question, which is how will you feel when you get there? Saw that in the book. 
Easy, right? So easy. Now all of a sudden they're like, a future conditional feeling? Well, nobody's ever asked me. Oh, man, I feel amazing. I feel proud. I feel confident. I feel like successful, whatever it might be. You know when you mouth a feeling, when you say words like, I would feel proud, you experience pride. Mm, yes. You can't help it. You no. get like a microdose. Not a full dose, but enough to go, I like the taste of that. So now you're in your happiest place. This is as good as you could get. This is a million dollars of tightrope walking. But it's still not enough, is it? No matter how good that thing might be, taking me to the happy, happy place where Peter Pan never, never land. What I now need to do, though, with the third stage of this questioning technique is set the building on fire. Because that's where I guarantee movement. So what I now do is I ask a question that starts with the words, what would the consequences be if? So what would the consequences be? And I make it like real. So here's where we bring it back to the very nature of the business that you're about. So you work in the world of social media and helping people get digital marketing strategies right. So what are you plans to do business over the next five years? Well, this, this, and this. We're going to grow to be wherever. And how's that going to feel when you get there, man? I feel so proud. We'd be employing people in the local community. Everybody be happy. I think legacy my kids, yada, yada, yada. Oh, what would the consequences be? If you got left behind. Yeah, if you got left behind because your competition's passed you and stole your customer base and damaged your reputation. Mm. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Hurts. Right. So that three-stage questioning technique is what you use to get just about anybody ready to do just about anything. Mm. I call that questioning technique prodding the roots. It's like taking an open wound and pulling it apart or pouring some salt on it. It's kind of painful. (laughs) But you have to be safe in the knowledge you can put it back together again. Yes. And in your scenario there, you could be able to say, well, good news, that's why we're here. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Good news is that's why we're talking. Good news is that's why it's the right time for us to get a show. And that that creation of contrast between how good something could be and how bad it might be, it's the difference between those two places that has somebody ready to move. That's the goal. So to your question of what do I think about bad news, I think we have to be prepared to go there, but we need to have the carrot of the good news out there too. And it needs to be done with integrity, which is nothing more than the truth. The truth is enough. And if it's not, you're in the wrong gear. Mm. And then the uh, last question I'll ask you, just on the the debunking, the you know the the um, asking for the sale. I mean, is that a uh, an obvious yes? Is there sort of a a way or style to do that, or you know, what's your what's your what's your take on on asking for the business at the end of the the presentation? Corey, are you married? I am. You know, when you asked your wife to marry, did you know the answer? Yes, I did. <laughs> The exact same thing is true in the sales process. Don't ask for the business before you're ready. Mm. Like, you have to know that when you're going to leave this towards the close, it's the only place this is going to go. And the it's already closed. It's delighted. It's yes. already done. Yes. Like, don't peek too soon. We all knew somebody that asked for something inappropriate on the first date and ended up with something which they didn't. <laughs> um, slow it down and you speed it up. And, and if you get to the outcome before your customer does or your prospect does, you peak too soon. Mm. Uh, That's all I got. That, that, you know, uh, it's a beautiful way to end. Although, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell folks this. Um, you can end right now. You can hit stop. Uh, we can say goodnight. But I'm gonna, I, I decided I'm going to ask Phil one more question. But, hey, we've been our hours. So if you want to hang up or leave, you, you go ahead. I'm going to tell you I'm going to ask him about uh, his entrepreneurial life and just if any, as any, you know, kind of best practices he'd share with those of you who are starting your journey or within your journey. But if you want to leave, leave, I totally understand. Maybe you've got it all figured out, but, um, Phil's been, been, been doing some, some great things over the years and, and, and a, and a pretty powerful entrepreneur. So I can't let you leave without just adding just, you know, a couple of things that you've learned along the way, man. Like, you know, this path is never the same for everybody, but we've learned a few things that, uh, you know, can help pave the way for other people. So t- take me back for a minute, just a couple of either pitfalls or best practices that you've learned as an entrepreneur. Okay, let me try and give some quick, quick nuggets. Advice and opinion are two different things. Um, so be very careful on who you listen to. Mm-hmm. Through that journey is, you know, opinion is one thing that everybody loves to give, but very few people are prepared to be responsible to. So, um, 
when you're on the way up, don't be afraid to ask for advice, but go get it from the people who've done it, who've walked in the shoes, who've been when you go. What you generally tend to find is people who've been super successful or have achieved you know, any levels of significant success in their life, they love to share. They're not, they don't just like, they're okay with sharing it. They're like, damn, somebody who gets me and I can give something back here, they're like hungry to be able to push it back in the other direction. So go be hungry for the advice for the, from the people who've done what you want to do. Don't go asking for the advice from the wrong people. And, and I'll give the, the, the kind of example here, and I hear it all the time, it's like, People have been looking for their spouse to talk into their business in a way that like, provides them some form of epiphany towards where they need to go. It's unfair. It's unfair on your relationship. It's unfair on your friendship. It's unfair on your business. It just like it doesn't win for anybody. So be careful who you, who, who you pick up advice from. Mm-hmm. And, and I think another big thing is, is don't become an expert in getting ready. Is... But think about my entrepreneurial journey and, and, and where I've come from and then the people I've surpassed on the way and then what I've gone on to go and achieve and then I still look back at the people that I passed that I once looked up to. Um, they're still trying to get ready. Mm. They're becoming experts in organizing their filing system. They're getting paranoid about what their website looks like. They're trying to write that perfect post there. Um, pragmatic amongst the article they got in their local newspaper that they want to be able to like frame and put it on the wall. And, um, they're just not doing enough of the thing that they should be doing. Mm. Perfection is something we should all aim at, but except we're never going to hit. And, and get good at kind of just getting stuff done, learning from the people who've done it. And, 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 and I've missed the key point. Entrepreneurism is is nothing to do with you. I get crazy frustrated right now with almost the romance, the romancing of what it means to be an entrepreneur. You know, the hustle, the grind, the, you know, the three AM club or whatever people try to call it. Like, like being an entrepreneur is the new sexy thing to be. It's like right. startups for life. Um, the reason that you get into a business isn't because you want to be successful. The reason you get into a business is you care vividly about the problem that you think you can solve and that nobody else can do it as well as you. Mm. If, if that exists inside of you, is that you have a passion to be able to make a change in the world, you're very clear about the problems that you solve and the people you help, then you'll figure the rest of it out. If you think it's about looking to try and become the next Uber of things or create this wonderful idea that is gonna that is gonna make you rich and famous, you're missing the point. The reason entrepreneurs are such an important part of society is because we'll work three times harder on the problem that everybody's talking about the other one's working out. Like be be prepared to get get busy about something that touches you here, not here, otherwise you won't go the distance. Mm. You know, we, we have a, a mantra in our company, uh, whether it's social media or any other industry, which is perfection is the enemy of progress. And yeah. we've even gone as far as to say perfection is the enemy of done. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's just like, you know, especially in the world that we live in today, if you feel like you're, as an entrepreneur, you feel like you're a perfectionist, it can be such a, a detriment. It can be a positive in some ways. But boy, I'll tell you, if you're waiting six months for that perfect post or that perfect article or that perfect, uh, you know, product that you're trying to create, you know, you're going to be passed by. So that's brilliant advice, my friend. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And, and, you know, I've got so much to share on this and and entrepreneurship is my passion. You can see from my backstory in terms of, you know, my difference from the education kind of system, et cetera. There are many, many ways to be successful, and success is something that you get to choose to define. It's not something that somebody else defines for you. And I encourage everybody to at least have a go with something entrepreneurial in their life. Even if it's a little side thing, it's something they're going to work on outside of their job, give it everything you've got. And not for what it makes for you, but because what it makes of you. Mm. You know, the personal development journey you go through just just from being in this stuff, 
is worth more than the money. God, you great accent and you're freaking smart too. Piss me off. Man. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, I want to, I want to end with, uh, this, the, you know, we, Phil and I pretty much know each other because of a group called speak and spill. Um, and Scott Stratton is the one who uh, created that, that group. It's a Facebook group. It's a powerful group and we know each other because of it. And so I want to end with, uh, a, a, a testimonial or quote, uh, from, from Scott about Phil's book. And I think it, it, it nails it right on the head. He says, this is the dictionary of business success language. And uh, that in itself is very powerful, Phil. And uh, boy, if you uh, can help business people, entrepreneurs, and salespeople understand how to you know, move the process along to where both parties leave happy and satisfied through the questions that you ask, man, uh, what a read, my friend. So thank you very much for being here. I cheers you one more time, my friend. Uh, phenomenal time I'm experience. Gonna, I'm going to pick you up on one word choice. I like the man. Okay. It's um, satisfying. Mm. Why do businesses firstly think about 97% satisfaction like it's a good thing? And, you know, if, if you just had a wonderful time with your wife and she said, man, I'm, I'm satisfied. <laughs> Just, just think on that for a second, and, and I wonder whether all of us should just, 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 just nudge the bar, just nudge the bar. Right? Even I, I guess if I, if I can just ask anybody to do one thing, it's, it's just, just nudge. Uh, you know, I, I recently saw Hamilton in New York, your, 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 your home stomping ground there. And, and one of the famous lines is that she'll never be satisfied. So uh, <laughs> that's definitely uh, uh, something we can strive for to, to, to surpass uh, satisfied and even, even further. So uh, thank you again, my friend, uh, Phil Jones, again, uh, pick up the book, Exactly What to Say. Amazon, join the Facebook group too. Uh, there's some, some extreme value there. I'm there. Uh, and I appreciate you very much, my friend. Uh, Phil Jones, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. We'll see you next time. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Thank you.